Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Good morning, everyone. This is Bill Glasgow of the Volcker Alliance, and welcome to our special briefing call. Today's subject is COVID-19 and the Federal Reserve Municipal Liquidity Facility and the Muni Market, of course. I'm joined by Susan Wachter, co-director of the Penn Institute of Urban Research at the University of Pennsylvania. Good morning, Susan, and good morning, attendees. We have a the top of the top for you today to explain what's going on with the Federal Reserve and its $500 billion lending facility and what may be down the road if the HEROES Act makes it through uh, the House and the Senate. We're joined today by, by Patrick Brett, who runs the municipal group at City. We're joined by Peter Hayes, who his counterpart on the buy side, who runs municipals at BlackRock and by Emily Swenson-Brock, who is the Chief Federal Liaison at the Government Finance Officers Association, which represents over 20,000 finance officers, treasurers, and the like around the country and in Canada. So if anybody knows what's going on in the market, these are the three to tell us. Just a couple of quick housekeeping details before we start. This is part of a weekly series of special briefing conversations that uh, the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR put on. We'll have details on next week's session at the end of this event. We're an audio-only conversation, so don't worry about your webcam not working. If there are any documents accompanying today's presentations, you'll find them on the Volcker Alliance website volkeralliance.org, along with the archived conversation of this and our past conversations. They'll also be on the Penn IUR website. We will be posting the Fed's latest term sheets and FAQs, which tell you a lot about where the $500 billion lending program is right now. With that, I'm going to uh, turn the mic over to Susan Walker, as I mentioned, co-director at the Penn Institute for Urban Research. In Philadelphia, Susan comes to you from the Philly suburbs. I come to you from the New Jersey suburbs. And uh, Susan, please take it away. Thank you very much, Bill. Welcome, attendees. It's my great pleasure to introduce Patrick Brett, who is Managing Director and Head of Cities Municipal Debt Capital Markets and Capital Solutions Businesses. We are very proud to say a member of the Penn Institute of Urban Research Advisory Board, Patrick is in the markets all the time, and we can get a perspective that's better than any from you, Patrick. Please discuss the Federal Reserve's MLF's impact today. Thank you. Sure. Thank you, Susan. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Bill. And thanks especially to Penn Institute for Urban Research. I can't think of a more interdisciplinary challenge for America's cities and for the whole country than this current crisis. It really does cut across different silos of expertise and knowledge. And I think just the way the Institute is set up across Penn's 12 schools just really lends itself to this kind of complex interdisciplinary question. And thanks to the Volcker Alliance as well for focusing us on the financial ramifications of this, which I think are one of the, one of the most important things. So I think that takes us to the MLF. I'm going to speak over the course of the next eight or nine minutes on the MLF, just sort of zooming back in time a little bit to sort of why it's needed. 
uh, why it was created, what it's designed to do, how much help it provides, what it does and what it doesn't, and some of the details of the most recent releases that we've gotten on it from the Fed earlier this week. But if we go back in time a little bit, sort of why does why is this municipal liquidity facility needed in the first place? I mean, it was first announced in April 9th. The creation of it probably really goes back to the weekend of March 21st, 22nd, when the CARES Act legislation was coming together. And I think there was a recognition that weekend that the municipal market was broken. A week prior to that, we had had the worst sell-off we'd ever seen in munis. And that was followed by another of an even worse sell-off leading into that weekend. And I think it was, it was during that time that the CARES Act was coming together on the Hill. We were quite involved in that. I know a lot of city and state governments were involved. We were speaking with a lot of people on the Hill, just explaining what was going on in the municipal market, what the issues were. And I think there are probably three main issues that were already coming into pretty sharp focus at that point, and I think are probably still the main issues. There was kind of this cash flow timing issue, which I think had already been crystallized by the federal government delaying tax filing from April 15th to July 15th. There's a second issue of sort of lost revenues from decreased activity, some of which is just not going to come back. And then there was the, the issue I was speaking most about there, which is sort of the market being broken and lack of access to capital. State and local governments, as I think a lot of people on the phone know, are huge economic drivers for the country. In aggregate, state and local governments are twice as big a part of GDP as the federal government. They employ 20 million people. And we can't afford to have those entities lose their access to the capital markets or run into bigger financial difficulties for a whole host of reasons. But of those problems, I think clearly Congress has already started to try to address some of the lost revenues at least. But I think there's more that's going to be done there from the HEROES Act. I think the MLF was, is intended to address sort of the cash flow timing issues, or at least it was initially. It's morphed a little bit in terms of and we'll talk a little bit about the details, but it was really the initial concept of it, at least that weekend when we were working with folks on the Hill for the MLF and getting the authority for the Fed to set up these kind of programs. The original idea really was to help with those cash flow timing issues. So if you were going to be receiving income tax payments April 15th, and those are now July 15th, there's some kind of a bridge loan. And the idea there really was to stop those cash flow timing issues from becoming credit issues, because it's pretty easy to see how how they could, particularly at a time when the market was under severe stress. Also, just in terms of the magnitude of the problem, I think you could pretty easily back into a number of sort of 100 to 200 billion in terms of the need of state and local governments from a cash flow timing issue and sort of at least some of the initial revenue losses that would need to be bridged. And that that is much larger than the municipal note market. The municipal market in aggregate is about 4 trillion, but the note portion of that is relatively small. It's only about 30 billion. So it's less than 1% of the outstanding market. And it certainly could not have absorbed 100 or 200 billion of short-term borrowing. So the other issue that weekend, I think that folks were looking at on the Hill was also the instability in the market. The market is on a little bit better footing now. I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more as the discussion goes on. The MLF is not really intended to help stabilize the longer-term municipal market, which was under severe stress. It remains, I would say, fragile, but it has been doing better, uh, certainly in recent weeks. So the MLF, why it's needed, I think we've covered that in order to bridge these cash flow timing issues. And also, as as I said, it, it has morphed a little bit into helping to, for revenues that may come back or that perhaps could be bonded out for later 
for longer term. For a longer term, it has morphed to cover a little bit of that as well. So the, the initial term sheet came out April 9th. It was quite narrow in scope. I think it was surprisingly narrow in terms of the number of eligible issuers. Uh, it was really only limited to the 50 states plus, I think at that time it was 27 different cities and counties. We had hoped uh, and certainly we had proposed making it available to a broad swath of investment grade issuers, given the credit quality of municipals that seemed quite prudent. And clearly there were needs kind of across all different types of municipal entities, not just states and the largest cities and counties. The Fed did subsequently expand on April 27th the scope of the facility, but really just within cities and counties to include around 227 cities and counties. So just by sort of toggling lower the population threshold. So there's still quite a number of issuers that are on the outside. Some certain revenue bond issuers, certain say like large transportation revenue bond issuers are still, are not yet included, but the Fed had, did explicitly say they're considering including those kinds of entities. So there is a possibility that some of those entities get included also. In terms of how much people can borrow, I mean, and also for how long it's a, it was originally a one-year facility. The update that came out later in April extended it to a three-year facility. And in terms of how much you can borrow, it's really, it's queued off of your revenues. So your own source revenues generally. So at the high end for state of California, everyone can borrow 20% of those revenues in the facility. So for state of California, it's just under 40 billion on the high end. And then South Dakota on the low end can borrow up to 547 million from the facility. The rates, which everyone was waiting for, because it's sort of hard to tell how useful or how good a facility is until you know what it costs. That information came out just on Monday. Those rates, I think, what are they? They're quoted as a spread to something called the overnight index swap Fed funds rate, which we don't really need to get too much into the details because it's not, the rate is actually all the way from sort of now out to three years. It's, it's really de minimis. It's around two or three basis points. So that's kind of the base rate. The spreads are really what matters. For a AAA issuer borrower, it's 150 basis points over that down to a triple B at 380. And there's actually a feature of the program that allows what we would call fallen angels to participate, which are entities that had been kind of pre-COVID investment grade that later got downgraded to double B. They can participate at a 590 basis point spread, so 5.9%. Those rates, if you compare them to the market, and I'm sure some of our other panelists will do that also, they don't, on the face of it, really make sense for issuers sort of in today's market, except for sort of the lowest rated issuers, so definitely those in the triple B category, or for some of the issuers that really need to borrow the largest amounts in the market. Remember, I said that the note market is only about 30 billion in size. So there are issuers that need to do five or $10 billion worth of cash flow borrowing. Even for very highly rated issuers, I think that would come with a pretty significant size penalty in the market, just given the size of it. Even if the facility doesn't get used by those entities, I think it'll be a very useful backstop for those types of entities. So that's it from a pricing perspective. That's extraordinarily good perspective to have. We uh, now will go to our second speaker, and Bill will introduce. Go ahead, Bill. Thank you, Susan. I'm going to introduce uh, Peter Hayes, uh, a longtime friend and former guest of our uh, old Bloomberg Municipal, Municipal Finance Conferences. 
Peter is Mr. Muni at BlackRock. I'm going to introduce Peter with kind of a question that we were discussing before we started today. Illinois just uh, sold $800 million uh, roughly in general obligation bonds this week. Managed to sell them even though it's the state everybody has picked to fail in somehow. So do we need an MLF? And what's the real purpose of this from the investor's point of view? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. And thank you, Bill. Thank you, Susan, for the invitation. The timing is great, by the way. So the state of Illinois did sell yesterday. It was a bit day to day. They thought it might come to market on Wednesday yesterday, and it did, and it cleared the market. There was some, I guess, um, doubt within the market whether they could clear and importantly, at what rate or what spread. It downsized a little bit. Originally, it was a, going to be a billion-dollar deal composed of both tax-exempt debt and taxable debt. They did downsize that a bit, but then based on the investor reception, the deal was multiple times oversubscribed, so in theory, they could have upsized it even more, but they did add to the deal, and I think the total size ended up being somewhere in, in the $800 million, $850 million range. And the pricing, actually, the yields were improved to be 10 basis points lower from what the original pricing was. But nonetheless, let's talk about the spread, which I think is interesting. So they did clear, but they cleared at a spread of well over 500 basis points, depending on where you look at it on the yield curve. And I think I heard Patrick chuckle a little bit when he talked about the, the pricing. We were speaking earlier about how coincident it is that when you look at the pricing of the MLF for below investment grade security, so while Illinois' rating isn't necessarily by the agencies currently below investment grade. I think there's a perception in the market there is a very good chance that that could happen due to the fallout from this pandemic. The spread on that below investment grade was 590 basis points, and I think you know generally the average spread was about 550 or 560 basis points. So pretty close to the MLF pricing, which I MLF pricing, which I thought was very interesting. And maybe in some respects, they, they got it right. So I think it tells me, and we saw MTA clear the market as well, which is another issuer that's been under pressure. So the health of the market is definitely improving. Patrick is right. The market was broken when the first MLF was introduced on April 9th. The secondary market has improved in recent sessions, and the primary market still remains a bit tenuous in terms of, I think, if you were to try to bring several deals in one day, the market would probably have a hard time absorbing that. But nonetheless, it's functioning much better. So I think it's a good sign overall for the market. And when I say market, I talk about all types of investors. Obviously, retail high net worth investors make up the bulk of the market, but for asset managers, for broker dealers, et cetera, that's what I represent as the market. So I think it is a good, healthy sign. So your question, Bill, the MLF and is it needed? I think there's been sort of an evolution of the perception of this program over time and, and probably the acceptance of it. I think initially, because the markets were broken, it was perceived as the first step towards the Fed intervening in the market. And as Patrick mentioned, this was really just a cash flow tool. This was really meant to be able to provide issuers with the ability to borrow money from the Fed so they could continue to provide basic services, which is their primary function. And the market, in many cases, perceived that. In some cases, they perceived it as the Fed was buying securities, which is not the case. Some perceived it as the fact this was step one and step two would be the Fed buying securities. That has, is still not the case. We don't know what the outcome of that will be. It really hasn't been 
discussed and perhaps on a better functioning market doesn't really need to be. But it is interesting. It shows me a few things. The original program only included 74 issuers. And the idea was that the Fed would extend their credit to these issuers. And when you look at the language of that term sheet, in turn, those states, cities, counties that were eligible could extend their credit to anyone within their boundaries, eligible municipalities, et cetera, even certain revenue issuers that could potentially apply for their own funds. And then those entities could extend their credit then further down the line. And this way, keeping it simple, if you will, for the Fed. Well, we saw an expansion of that to now well over 200 types of entities by lowering the population thresholds. And again, it still not has been expanded to a lot of these revenue issues. I think the hope is that these entities would then in turn, as I mentioned, extend their credit. But you know what, what this really shows me is the political difficulty of the Fed buying municipal debt, either for their balance sheet or even in this particular program. I think a lot of the expansion from the original list to this expanded list was around political pressure and trying to include smaller issuers. You know, the notion of expanding that even further and the Fed adding securities in their balance sheet like they have with other. I mean, you think it's interesting look what they've done with corporate debt, with mortgage backed securities, and they haven't with municipal debt, which obviously are in dire need given the impact to the U.S. population from the economic shutdown. So, yes, it has acted as a backstop, both in terms of pricing and size. But I think there is greater disappointment now than there was at first when there was this hope that this was the first of two steps. I think there's a little disappointing perhaps in terms of of pricing and the Fed, I had a call recently with the Fed and they, they asked me and I said, well, if I'm an issuer, if I put myself in an issuer's seat, I think it seems expensive. And you know, one of the ways you can think about that is there is a backstop and you take a look at the state of Illinois, okay, that's the upside to their borrowing costs. But the other that's interesting is Patrick's right. The market couldn't take if the needs of what the states and cities would need to borrow on a cash flow basis in the current market environment. There's no way they could do that. So they do have the ability to borrow in size to help continue to provide basic services and offset some of the revenue loss they've seen from this pandemic. So that is a plus and that there is a big size backstop. There is an element of a price backstop as well in the market. And also the fact that the term was increased from two years to three years, I find interesting. There's kind of this growing, I think, popular belief that the economy in general, I'm not saying we believe it, but I've heard this more and more, is that the economy will return to pre-COVID normalcy, if you will, in about a three-year time frame. So I think the thinking here is that revenues will begin to normalize over the pace of three years. But that's hard to envision when you think about some of the proposals for reopening the economy, they're all on a fraction, whether you look at kind of restaurant capacity or you think about stadiums, you think about travel, you think about all the, you know, working from home and the use of mass transit, it's all gonna be a fraction of what it was pre-COVID and it remains to be seen how long that will take to return to normal. So you can debate the term as well, two to three years. So I guess, you know, Bill, the bottom line to your question is, was it helpful to the market? I don't think so. I think there was a hope that there would be this second step. That's faded a little bit, but in the meantime, the outflows, which were largely driving some of the negative price performance in the market have subsided, they've stabilized. We're not necessarily seeing money into the market now. I think there's a great deal of uncertainty around 
municipal credit. And there should be, because we don't know the length of this economic impact, the length of the shutdown, et cetera. So there's a lot of guesswork going into municipal pricing. And I think you see that even with the state of Illinois, how, you know, why a spread of over 500, because the market's extrapolating some pretty bad numbers to, that will occur in the state of Illinois. Is it right? I don't know. I mean, obviously cleared the, the market. That'll be determined by how quickly the U.S. economy bounces back in here. So I don't think broadly it was really a help to the market. I think there's other factors going in in the market currently. And I still would argue that the primary market is not functioning anywhere close to what it was pre-COVID. So if issuers were to try it, I'll be interested in, in Emily's viewpoint on this as well. If issuers were to try to access the market in a normal way for their capital needs, capital borrowing needs, et cetera, could they do so? And my answer would be no. I think the primary market's been very spotty. It's been very day-to-day, almost by appointment, if you will. It was a build-up to this, even this Illinois loan. But there's a lot of compensation that's going into the state of Illinois yield and spread. And it's important to note, the footnote there also, is that states don't have a means to declare bankruptcy, despite what we've heard occasionally in Washington. So a lot of guesswork going into the market currently, still not functioning properly. And the MLF, I think, has a ways to go before it's going to be utilized and really help the market per se. So maybe I'll stop there. Thank you very much. We are now going to hear from Emily Sensenbrock, who will, in fact, give us the view of what uh, financial officers on the municipal and state level are considering doing. Peter, what you have said is very interesting, a combination of not as helpful as you would have liked to seen. But on the other hand, perhaps it is been part of the story of why Illinois, for example, came in 5.5, so close to the 5.9. So perhaps it is serving a backstop function. Our next speaker will be able to address this directly, Emily Swenson-Brock, who is the director of the Government Finance Officers Association, Federal Liaison Center, and leader of coalition and advocacy efforts for the Public Finance Network. Emily, I understand that you have just done a survey of state and local treasurers and finance officers. What are they telling you about using this facility? Susan, Bill, thank you so much for having me and for having GFOA speak to the issuers, the broader issuers' voice right now at this critical time. Susan, you asked about confirming my straw poll. I have the luxury of being able to ask all kinds of issuers with 21,000 members how they feel and what they see and what our expectations are in terms of federal policy creation and whether or not it will help. My straw poll is a subset of the GFOA organization called the GFOA Debt Committee. And I just kind of asked them, I asked them week to week, all right, throughout the development of this municipal liquidity facility, is this something that you might use? And I can say my most recent straw poll with the FAQ 2.0 that just recently came out, there were no takers on the debt committee. And I think, though, it's because there are still a fair amount of issuers 
who are finding capital in other ways and they are preparing in other ways. They are going to the market as is illustrated by MTA in Illinois. You could even talk about smaller issuers accessing capital in the markets at this point. But to take a step back, I did want to say the Federal Reserve has been very inclusive in the development of the municipal liquidity facility. In fact, GFOA has been consulted from the beginning, even prior to the passage of the CARES Act when the money market liquidity fund was being expanded to include BRDNs. We've been involved in the conversations throughout, and I think that they're a very thoughtful organization going forward and reacting to input that they receive from the market. As we're communicating the municipal liquidity facility to issuers across the country, I think many issuers across the country are sensitive to what both Peter and Patrick have well articulated, and I think the Fed has done an excellent job articulating the policy objective, which is to create liquidity in the municipal market. It's not to create a long-term purchasing facility in the secondary space. It's not to create guarantees that last for years and years and years. It's a short-term facility that is immediate and from the perspective and the legislative intent of Section 4003 of the CARES Act is the most important thing to address. And throughout the development of the municipal liquidity facility, that is from the beginning, from the outset of the CARES Act and, and the establishment of a legislative intent, GFOA has communicated quite a bit with the Federal Reserve and of course with our membership, two really important elements. Timing is so important. And in some respects, we were kind of <laughs> talking out of both sides of our mouth. We said, hey, Federal Reserve, can you set this up fast? And the reason, of course, the rationale is that we don't know what we don't know. And essentially, you know, right now where we stand, it has served to be an effective backstop in terms of pricing big deals as we stand. But we also ask them to please be patient with us. This facility is open to traditional geo credits. And the assessment that local governments will have to go through to make a determination of the severe revenue receipt challenges ahead of them are dramatic and will take some time. And so it was in our initial request that if you could set it up really quick, but if you could delay the implementation date or delay the time that we could access this capital, that'd be helpful. Not only that, in terms of finding out our needs, there are many issuers in the midsection of the country that wouldn't even be able to use this because policies established prohibit borrowing for working capital needs. And so it would require legislative action for essentially the entire midsection of our country. And not only that, but I think there are also, because of GFOA represents traditional geo credits. GFOA also represents about 40% of our membership are political subdivisions, those that would issue bonds supported by transit fees, water revenues, and other things. So there is a great sense of urgency from our membership saying, if there is the possibility of borrowing through an eligible entity, creating this quickly and helping the Federal Reserve to understand accessibility is so important beyond traditional geo credits is something that we tried to communicate. Now, I think the 500-pound gorilla that's come into our conversation recently is the cost. That was a second important element from our membership. 
So first is timing and second is cost. Of course, what we saw was pricing, as Peter and Patrick both articulated, a pricing matrix that was high for many of our members. In essence, what our membership was saying was, you know, it truly is reflective of a principle that continues to be repeated, both in the term sheet and in the FAQs, that the federal government would like to be the lender of last resort. And so where we have deals that have been placed for the majority of issuers, this municipal liquidity facility as it's established has shown to be a sufficient backstop as we are at this point in time. It's far more expensive for your higher rated investment grade credits. But also I think that for those issuers who are looking at a pricing matrix that seems to be a spread that seems to be quite high, To put yourself in the issuer's shoes, you have to also consider the borrowing costs that are added, the 10 basis points administrative fee that's added on. And now additionally, there are taxability questions which would require attorney's fees and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As you can imagine, the borrowing costs are similar to issuing it out to the market, but again, a prohibitive elements, I think, as issuers are starting to look at the municipal liquidity facility. That said, Where we are today is not where we are going to be in November. It's a high possibility that we'll see sharply declining revenues and issuers are feeling a great sense of comfort and are very happy that the municipal liquidity facility has been established because it has shown to be an effective backstop and a very strong step in the right direction. What's next under section 4003? As we saw on Tuesday of this week, There are amendments that have been requested by House leadership. In the HEROES Act, they have requested amendments to the borrowing cap. So not necessarily the term. They would like to extend it from 36 months to 10 years. They'd like to increase access to broader issuers. They'd like to minimize the administrative hurdles to entry. That is, they'd like to get rid of the credentialing that needs to occur that the Federal Reserve is the lender of last resort. And it also presses down on price. That is, it requires borrowing at the Fed funds rate. So this is a conversation that obviously was very important to Chairwoman Maxine Waters. And I think it made it into uh, the HEROES Act simply because it is still a new program. It is unprecedented and it hasn't been established yet. So it appears as if leadership in the House has seen this as a malleable program and something that might be able to be revised. GFOI members are still, we're still assessing, of course, the HEROES Act. It is, for the most part, our membership has reacted quite dramatically, of course, to the significant money of direct revenue, the trillion dollars we were promised and the trillion dollars that appears to be written and delivered to state and local governments. So that, of course, is a a high priority for us. But of course, we're also assessing the potential amendments that would be applied to the municipal liquidity facility. Again, for us, pricing and timing are so very important in the development of the municipal liquidity facility. But again, where we are, where we stand, GFOI membership has acknowledged that this is a step in the right direction. And we acknowledge too that it's designed to satisfy that specific policy objective, which is to create liquidity in the municipal market. We, and I still look forward to working with the Fed on additional operational policy objectives that would help to underpin other areas of the municipal market. 
And of course, with the policymakers in Congress, we look forward to laying the groundwork with them to establish a path forward in this pandemic. Appreciate you having me on this call today. Well, thank you so much, Emily. You've answered uh, a bunch of, actually, without intending to, perhaps answered a bunch of questions that have come in from the audience and from some of the reporters in attendance today about where where the HEROES Act might take this program if the Senate should go along with it. But let me back up for a second. Chuck, and this is, this is kind of a jump ball question. Anybody wants to take it? Chuck Schumer had some comments today on the outlook for states and municipalities. Peter addressed that, addressed it briefly on the role of states and municipalities in the economy. So recall for us what uh, Senator Schumer said and how this relates to the issue of credit for states, localities, agencies, counties, the whole ball of wax. Sure. I mean, just big picture. I mean, if we think back to the, the last big Obama stimulus bill that we had, I mean, the reason that so much direct aid and that was directed at state and local governments was because of the economic importance of those entities and because of the fact that they have, I think, 49 of the 50 states have balanced budget requirements. So they act at the same time that the fiscally we should be tapping on the accelerator, jamming on the accelerator. They're jamming on the brakes and really content to. And I think a lot of people think that even with the direct grants that state and local governments got in the last recession, that it wasn't enough to offset the cuts that they eventually had to make to their workforces and to their budgets and that the last recession was deeper and longer than it needed to be because even the aid that they got wasn't enough. So I think we have pretty recent experience and validation that you do need to get direct aid into state and local governments. It's an open question as to how much that needs to be, but I don't think it's really up for debate that they need direct aid. Otherwise, you're gonna, they're going to act as a huge break on the economy and slow down and potentially make even deeper the economic contraction that we're experiencing. Well, thanks. I want to remind you all that you're listening to the special briefing sponsored by the Volcker Alliance and Penn Institute of Urban Research. The archive version of this edition and all of our previous ones are on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites, as are any supporting documents that our, our speakers uh, may have. We've posted the Fed's term sheet and FAQs, which explain up to the minute, or at least as far as Monday, the exact states, cities, types of borrowers that are eligible for Federal Reserve credit if they choose to avail themselves of it. I want to ask a question posed by Dick Ravitch and then turn to Susan to tease out a point that Emily made. So the the question from Dick, who uh, lived through the New York City financial crisis, helped New York out of the wilderness, and has been very critical of cash accounting that essentially allows many states and localities to borrow for operating expenses. Dick said, well, given the proposition that state and city revenues are going to decline precipitously over the next couple of years because of reduced sales and income taxes and maybe property values, borrowing to cover these shortfalls assumes that it can be repaid in a relatively short time. But is this an erroneous assumption because nobody can really predict where this is going to come out? So why take on the loans? Why take on the risk? Who would like to address that question from Mr. Ravitch? I can take it, Don. I mean, that's the starting point, I think. You know, obviously, it's a good question that I know Dick has focused on before about uh, some of the challenges that states and cities have had, and then you pile on what's taking place here, and uh, it's certainly going to make it more difficult. So I think that's really the, you know, the long-term question, and states who have balanced budget amendments, and they have a, a pretty disciplined fiscal process. They have a, a deep fiscal toolkit. The difficulty here is going to be you know, how deep and prolonged is this recession going to be? 
And, you know, what we've talked about internally with regard to some of these is what's the, the resolve of some of these entities to actually make budget cuts. And I think, you know, that'll be the telltale sign about some of that going forward. I think that, the, you know, again, as I mentioned, the length of time it may take to get out of this and begin to even come close to normalize revenues, I don't think anybody can really guess that because so much is dependent on the social and behavioral changes that are likely to take place longer term. So, uh, you know, this is going to be something that's going to be stressed for some period of time. So the question, you know, around the repayment of this MLF, should one utilize it, is a question of things like budget cuts and things like are they willing to raise taxes, et cetera, that I think remain to be seen. I mean, I think Emily had a very good point on the timing of this is really difficult. Everybody sort of expects, okay, most City states have June 30th budgets, but they just don't know what the extent of this revenue downturn is going to be. It's probably going to take the better part of this year to really see through that. So I think this has to really play out over a period of time, even with regard to the MLF. Do they use it? Do they not utilize it? You know, how big is that? As I mentioned earlier, the, I think it's the size is the key. They can tap the market for so much. Maybe they can tap banks for so much in terms of credit lines. But if the numbers become very big, then obviously it's going to be important to utilize the, the MLF. And then the question is, how long is the payback term and, and what will ultimately happen? So I think the size will determine that to some degree, Dick. And market access is the second component of that. So those entities that are willing to make budget cuts, raise taxes, et cetera, likely will have better market access. The market access in turn will help some of that repayment longer term potentially. So I think there's, uh, you know, once again, as this whole pandemic plays out, I think there's more question marks than there are certainties. Well, I'd like to turn the next question over to Susan and, and Emily. Susan, your institute has Urban as its middle name. And Emily brought up the issue that in the midsection, at least many municipalities, if I heard it right, prohibit borrowing for operating needs. This is what brought New York City within nine minutes of bankruptcy in 1975. So it's a concern. Number one is, can cities avail themselves of this facility for more than just immediate cash flow needs, the tax anticipation note or a revenue anticipation note type of financing? And a related question from Jason Powell from the Virginia Senate Finance Committee staff, is legislative authorization needed to, to use the MLF? And what if locals default to states? There's a lot of kind of unanswered wish questions here. Who, who ends up holding the bag? So, but let me uh, put a, another point on that question, going back to what you said, Emily, which is that this is a facility that is looked at very favorably from the perspective of what happens in November when, in fact, revenues are expected to decline precipitously to have this as a backstop. In what way does this reassure? What is the action that municipalities are expecting to take if, in fact, revenues decline? How do they expect to use the MLF under those circumstances, particularly given the legislative need, perhaps, in, in parts of the country? Sure. Thank you. That's a multifaceted <laughs> question. So I might take it uh, sort of one step at a time. So addressing sort of the first challenge, I think, the legislative authorization and sort of that intimate relationship between the state and the borrower. In the beginning, the creation of the MLF, obviously, 
they set the universe as very, very tight. Only states and local governments who are in the millions of population could access directly the MLF. Now, in the second iteration of the term sheet, they have extended that quite broadly into more mid-sized cities. So Richmond, Virginia, for example, qualifies as a direct borrower. That, in many ways, was really favorable in our space because in the prior iteration, where you had only the mega issuers allowing to sort of access the municipal liquidity facility, what that meant was those mega issuers had to take on the risk of any credit that they were trying to extend to. So, of course, as you know, the MLF allows for borrowing of other entities underneath its umbrella. You know, states that don't have a intermediary or even states that do have an intermediary are looking at that and saying, we're taking on additional risk that we have never taken on before in an environment where revenues are falling precipitously. There was a lot of discomfort and there remains a lot of discomfort about who bears the risk of the capacity of the local government who would borrow underneath an eligible entity to repay during extremely stressed times. And so I guess what I would say is that we saw the development of opening up the facility to more issuers as a very positive step in the right direction. But the amount of cities, counties, towns that are even still underneath that threshold, right now we're talking about still just 177 issuers being able to access the municipal liquidity facility themselves and underwriting that risk of being able to repay that debt to a universe of about 50,000 potential issuers. You know, again, that's very hard for us to situate in our timing <laughs> because we very much would like for this facility to be up and running as quickly as possible because it does have immediate backstop effects. That's a, a very fair point. The, the field is, uh, is very limited. I wanted to uh, sort of summarize several questions we've dealt with. We've dealt with the question of smaller issuers and how many issuers are, are able to access this, this facility. This is kind of a philosophical uh, question. Number one, uh, this is from Michael Mazurov of the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities. He asked, is anybody talking about the significant constraints on more than one year state borrowing created by state constitutional debt limitations and balanced budget provisions? And from Thomas Savage at Alec, a related question, will this crisis recalling the defaults of the 1830s that were related to railroad bonds and canal bonds and bank bonds rather than a revenue shortfall, will this current episode result in stronger balanced budget amendments and debt restructurings? There one legislative and one philosophical question. I wonder if Peter or Patrick might look at that from a market perspective and what you're hearing. I can try on the legislative or the constitutional constraints first. I mean, I would say, yes, I mean, the points well taken are, are all manifold constraints that state and local governments have in terms of accessing this program. I think the Fed's well aware of that. I think the Fed also did in the latest release, try to accommodate some of those needs, at least as it relates to needing to access the market through what we call the competitive market or an auction process. Don't need to get into the details, but the Fed did, and it at a significant cost to the Fed. I mean, it's going to make this a lot more complicated for them operationally to execute, but they are trying to deal with some of the statutory and regulatory issues that exist. All that being said, there are some that the Fed can't deal with. There are certain state 
statutory and constitutional limitations. I don't think people expect constitutions to get changed, but people are changing statutes already. I mean, it's this is it's in these kind of times of crisis and urgent needs that a lot of these, as the questioner included in that question, it was in the 1830s after those defaults that a lot of these policies change. So this is kind of the time when they do. I would say though that bringing it back to the pricing point, I think that the pricing doesn't necessarily encourage entities to bend over backwards and make those statutory changes and do the things they would need to do to access the facility. It's kind of not worth it for certain issuers, especially if you're thinking about needing to sort of pass the money along to other entities. So I, I don't expect to see a lot of changes by those higher rated issuers, but I don't know, Peter, your take. Well, I mean, I think Patrick's right. Regards to legislative changes, you know, who who knows? And then the other is the kind of the blue versus the red aspect of it. And we've seen that in past years where each of the parties has different ways of kind of looking at balanced budgets, et cetera. You know, the one thing I will say is that coming into this, if you look at a lot of the rainy day funds of states and general fund surpluses, they were fairly healthy. I mean, they've done a much more responsible job coming out of the financial crisis about around reducing debt, et cetera, and keeping rainy day funds higher. And in general, I'd say municipal credit was probably better because of that. So kind of the, the broader question for me is, will they are they going to need balanced budget amendments or different types of tighter constraints around those balanced budget amendments, et cetera? I, I would just ask that. With regards to kind of the the fault question, you know, that's the one that's sort of out there. And just again, it remains a big question mark. But when you look at the severity of this and how different this is from anything, even the financial crisis, et cetera, it does raise the question as to whether this is the event that will potentially, you know, coming into this, there was in many states had difficulty with pension funding liability, it was crowding out you know, education and other aspects of this. And you sort of wonder whether this is that watershed event that will begin to get states and, and cities looking at some type of debt restructuring. Again, I want to be clear that Chapter 9 bankruptcy, there's only a statute or provision for that in a subset of the state. So it's not even allowed in, in most of the states. And states themselves have no legal recourse to do this. It would take probably some type of constitutional amendment. States haven't been asking this. So it's a really far-fetched question, not something that we believe, but it is something you have to ask yourself, especially once you go down the rating spectrum around some of the pressures. And the bottom line is, do some of these other spending mechanisms crowd out the ability to provide basic services? Because that's what these entities are supposed to do, designed to do. And if some of those other things are crowding out those services, then you have to ask yourself, what's the ultimate end goal of that? A very fair point. I've got one last question, which is really about the capacity of, this is a state question, the capacity of states to take on more debt. Unemployment trust funds, which are state, federal, are rapidly running out of reserves. At the start of this year, there were 20 states plus the Virgin Islands that were inadequately funded below the minimum solvency level that the Labor Department determines. We've seen Texas, California, Illinois, 
Connecticut, I believe several other states asking for loans and in some cases receiving them. During the last recession and the immediate aftermath, states borrowed $200 billion, mostly from the federal government, some of it internally or from the bond market. But they, they added $200 billion in debt, which needed to be repaid in fairly short order. This crisis is much larger in terms of the number of claims filed, the, the unemployment rate, the whole thing. So are we going to see states piling on a multiple of that $200 billion figure just to reliquify the, the unemployment system? How does that affect their ability to borrow for their cash flow needs or capital needs? Just from a credit perspective, but it is the the states are the entities that are administering those programs, but I don't think, and I'd be curious Peter's view, but the way I think about it is it's really the employers in those states that end up getting taxed to pay for those trust funds. There's various mechanisms to do it, but I don't generally think of that as sort of debt of the state that would limit kind of their borrowing ability, but I'd be curious with Peter or if anyone else has a different view. I would say that's right with regards to the unemployment trust funds. You know, the bigger, broader question is just with all the different needs among states, states and cities, what access to capital do they have? Take infrastructure. There's been huge rhetoric around infrastructure. Everybody wants to do infrastructure. Democrats, Republicans, everybody, they just can't agree on how to pay for it. And if we look at infrastructure spending over the last 10 years, which has actually been been needed, you know, it really hasn't been, especially when you consider the interest rate environment, it hasn't been ramping up. So I think everything's kind of getting crowded out. And the HEROES Act, I believe they're the $1 trillion state and local aid. I think 900 something billion of that is actually flexible and can be used for any purpose. So how will they use that? Will they use that to fund pensions? Will they use it just for cash flow and offset the revenue drop? Will they use it for the unemployment trust fund? I remains to be seen. I think that's the the bigger question is longer term, what is going to be the cost of capital and what will be the casualty of that? Because there's likely to be casualties. Is it education funding? Is it infrastructure funding? Is it pension funding? Who knows? But I think that's the bigger, broader question longer term. And just to follow up, Peter's very good point. I think that there are a lot of states that are currently preparing for that. I think that you have finance officers working furiously from their dining room tables to ensure that there is solvency or at least access to liquidity on the front end, but also working very hard to establish, as Peter mentioned, to bring back those tools for capital financing that do save money, advance your funding, uh, bank qualified debt, for example. Those initiatives are still very much on the top of mind of Chairman Neal throughout our conversations of next steps in the process. That actually is a great point. If you don't mind me, just one quick thing. So two words that Emily used, liquidity and solvency. And we've sort of characterized this as much more of a liquidity crisis than a solvency crisis because of a lot of the things that I talked about. But I think it's an important distinction. And the MLF, which is sort of the topic of this, the alliance here, is being certainly being helped dramatically by this MLF in terms of having a sizable backstop to help meet some of those liquidity needs in the near term. Really important point. Well, we're coming up on the top of the hour. I want to thank everybody, my co-host, Susan Walker from Penn IUR, Patrick Brett, Peter Hayes, and Emily Swenson-Brock. It's been a great discussion. Thank you, audience, for your questions and your attention. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. 
Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.